All right, welcome everybody to a new episode of Moscow Mules and Knob Slides. I'm Kyle, and I'm David. I'm yeah, sorry, I talked right over you. See, it's like it's like you know, riding a bike. Never done this before. <laughs> no, <laughs> such failure today. Uh, and our guest of the week is Richard. Hey, Richard, how you doing? Good, thanks, guys. Appreciate the opportunity. Oh, it's great to actually have you here. Uh, I mean, it's it's really cool to have you. I mean, you know, as we were talking, you know, pre-podcast about using your uh, books, but we'll get into that uh, a little later on. But if everybody's listening for the first time, I, I guess I started doing this again, even though I haven't done this in a while, but um, I can't assume everybody's listened to the last 36 podcasts, but you know, this is just where we uh, get together with cybersecurity and technical professionals and, you know, talk to them over some drinks and talk about things they've done uh, through their career and what things they're working on, things like that. So um, without further ado, I know you, you, it looks like you were sipping on some water, but is there, do you have a go-to drink Richard when you're like out and about or, you know, what's, what's your, you know, if you're, are you, uh, you know, uh, we had Philip on last week and he's like this uh, big iced tea drinker, even though he wasn't drinking iced tea. So, so I would like, like to find someone who has a, a lower number of drinks that I, that they actually consume compared to me. I, there are three things that I drink in this order of volume. Uh, the first one is water. It, is, it hasn't always been this way. I'll just say this is what it's like when you approach 50 years old and you're like me. I drink water from the tap. I drink orange juice when I have my breakfast. And occasionally, if I can squeeze it into my diet, I will have milk when I have a brownie or cookies. Ooh. And that is all. That but is the brownies all that and cookies. The, the cookies yeah. and brownies squeezed in though, right? <laughs> well, yes. And sometimes I, I'll trade one, one off against the other. So I had half a brownie today. Um, but just with water. Here's I the mean, thing. I when I was a kid, I used to be able to eat anything. I mean, I ate mm -hmm. any, I struggled to, to, to hit 150 pounds and now I'm struggling to get back to 150 pounds <laughs> from the other side, <laughs> but I'm getting there. That's my, one of my goals during quarantine is to, is to, to fight that fight. So yeah, that's what you got to do. Are, are you a pulp or no pulp OJ drinker? Oh, no pulp. No, I can't stand it. You don't like to chew your orange juice, huh? No, nope. yeah. gotta strain that out. Mm, no, oh, <laughs> I do hate some. Pulp. I need pulp. I pulp. You like? Can I say pulp? Oh, oh man, I was raised on pulp. That's kind of the problem. My dad liked it, so you know that was Sunday morning breakfast, or you know he he cooks breakfast for dinner. Like it's pulp orange juice, hundred percent. My kids hate it, so that's that's kind of the fight I have right now. Is that, you know, <laughs> it's what you were raised with. That's that's how it goes. Yeah, I don't know. I, I was mean, raised trying with to get pulp orange juice. juice. And I hated it. I still hate it. Like I, oof. It Did you get like the, like the uh, the Donald Duck frozen orange juice when you were when you were young, younger? Did you get either of you? No. You like the like the frozen concentrate, like the real the, the stuff you'd uh, I don't know. We, we couldn't made. afford we, we couldn't afford and but we couldn't afford so we had to go with whatever the generic 1970s frozen concentrate was. Oh man, yeah. I didn't know Donald Duck was a brand. I thought that was just like <laughs> the thing. Like it was just, you know, no one else made frozen orange juice in a tube. So it was you know, <laughs> this pantsless duck did it. Guess not. Nope. No pantsless duck. Hmm. Yeah, I'm a big I, I mean, I don't we don't keep anything. I'm I'm kind of in the same boat. We I I drink water almost solely drinking water. Uh am I choppy on I might have to cut this out. Am no, I you're good. You're you're okay. good. No, you're good. Okay. You guys keep freezing up on my end, but uh, um, not to cut that little part. Off. Yeah, but I'm more of a straight water drinker too. You know, obviously the occasional alcoholic beverage, but uh, as in tonight. But uh, I can say I something about that. I, I haven't had anything to drink alcohol wise 
since 1996. Holy. Wow. That's impressive. (laughs) I mean, I I guess that's congratulations. That's a long, that's a long. Well, I haven't shared this story publicly, I don't think. But the reason I stopped was that uh, the last time I had a problem, we'll just say, where I would drink to excess. This was uh, my years at the Air Force Academy and then following that in grad school. And I carried on to when I went to uh, military intelligence school in San Antonio, Texas. And one of the last things I remember about that was being so blitzed that when I met Amy, who became my wife, I didn't even remember the next day that I was supposed to have like said hello to her again, visited her again. And she was really mad at me. So I decided that, okay, I'm going to stop this because this is interfering with like my actual ability to function. And, uh, yeah, I haven't had anything to drink since August of 1996 when when I met Amy. That's bananas. <laughs> I mean, good for you. I, I felt the same. I mean, like this is nearly the same sort of caliber of detail, but like I remember cutting pop out of my diet uh, soda, you know, whatever part of the country you're from. And yeah. like, I, I haven't looked back and like, for me, it's coming up on probably like 15 years of not drinking like, you know, Coke or, or Pepsi. Yeah, that's nowhere near alcoholic. The, you know, the, <laughs> the health differences are completely polar opposites. They couldn't be anywhere near related. But that's I a, think that's I'm a about, significant amount of time. Yeah, I think I'm, a, I'm somewhere in the 10-year range with, with sodas because my kids remember when they were small, they remember I used to drink like Coke Zero or Diet Coke or something. But then I decided to switch out of that just because just from a calorie perspective. And what's well, not good for you, you know, right? Yeah, it's just not good for you. What what was your uh, your favorite of those? Was it Coke Zero all the time, like Coke brand? Yeah, it was, I was all Coke brands at the time. I'm a Coke guy. I don't like Pepsi. <laughs> My family likes know, you don't even know what you like anymore because you don't drink it. Uh, sometimes I'll like I'll watch some like I don't know. My wife will get a coke every now and then. And I'll look at it and be like, hmm, maybe today's the day. <laughs> it's not. It's never the day. I mean, that's why I don't keep it in my house. Like, cause I mean, I won't buy it. Like, that's the thing is, like, I also don't buy sweets because if I buy like Oreos, I'm gonna eat all the Oreos, right? Oh, yeah. like, it's like, and as an adult, you have the choice to buy it or not. And it's like, I'm just not gonna buy it. But if I bought it, I'm gonna eat it. And like, that's why, you know, we try to keep, you know, keep it healthy in that sense. I mean, it, it's, it's tough. Like having younger kids, we, we never had that stuff in our house. Like when we first got married, like when it was our straight out of college and I was like, all right, I'm just going to, you know, straighten my diet up and I'm going to eat healthy. You don't, you're like, you said, you don't have to have that in your house. Yeah. And then, you know, your kids like, Hey, I like Oreos. You're like, hey, uh, okay. I like Oreos. I guess I can have one or two. And then you're like, Hmm, I think I'm going to have six or seven. Because no one can tell me to stop now in a glass of milk. <laughs> or almond. Shout out to Almond Breeze. Almond Breeze. One of my favorites. So, so David, what are you uh, sipping on tonight? So today, uh, supporting lo- local business or small business, there is uh, uh, kind of like a new promotion at, at my brewery uh, down the street where they half off growler fills. So a uh, container of beer. That is saison. It is the saison style from them, which is um, it's kind of like a French French farmhouse, I guess is what they call it. It's uh, kind of like a wheat beer, but Belgian style, uh, a little stinky. It's supposed to be earthy and fruity, so uh, I'm just gonna drink that. Trying to drink this. Support local business, whether it's half off or not. But I don't like to pay full price for anything, so this was. <laughs> gotta have a coupon, right? Yeah, and then I got the uh, I just got a local glass tonight, local glassware. I actually wore the shirt accidentally, so I'm I'm just all you know 
Team Sellerworks here. Oh, you should geez. be sponsoring your here. Too. I was gonna say, Sellerworks. Uh, like our tweets, retweet our tweets, and uh, how about sponsor? I'm us? sorry, I didn't even say what what the local brewery was. It's Sellerworks. Yeah, Sellerworks out here. And so Sarver, you cut out a little bit on my end. Maybe hopefully the audio is better on your end. Uh, but what did you, what type of uh, beer in the ground? It's a oh, uh, yeah. So it's it's nice and clean. My glass is clean too. That's nice. Uh, a little yellow, a little stinky. Uh, the the yeast is pretty much what makes this beer the style that it is. Usually they get open top fermented. So they let all the, the nice bacteria and organisms inside and uh, carbonate it that way. But I, I don't know what, what their style is down there for that, but um, maybe I can look into that. So you Caps fan. Uh, I have to say I am because yeah, I that's live okay. here. Um, my daughter or my old, my older child is a huge Caps fan. I, I took her to several games and, and uh, to the whole family, but when they went on their cup run, I would take her, we, you know, tickets were not possible. You couldn't get them. So we would, we would be outside in the crowd and I was with her several games, including the game that they won. They weren't even, you know, in the stadium, but they were, they were out in Vegas. And so we were out in the crowd. So, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. I grew up in Boston. So I am a, I'm a diehard Bruins fan. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> They're having a good, they were having a good season and then like fell off. Yeah. They had, they had an awesome start. Um, they've had some rough patches. They're having trouble with scoring via first line um so yeah we'll see with trade deadlines coming up we'll see if they might make a move to grab some scoring power man the the, the penguins it wasn't look like we were doing anything and then all of a sudden i think they went on uh whatever that whatever our march run was was just awesome yeah, mm. i don't know we'll see there's plenty of hockey to be played and and teams are moving around and the brewers might not make it because they're on the bubble right now fourth spot that bubble moves real fast though, because it was the Islanders for a minute and then it was the Penguins on the bubble and now it's the Flyers on the bubble. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I picked the glass uh, based on you, Richard, because I know uh, one of the, kind of the talking points is martial arts and stuff like that. So this is actually a uh, Leonardo, uh, like he's in a gi, you know, he's a, looks like he's a four stripe black belt, but it's a sort of really cool, like uh, Leonardo from Teen Mitten into Turtles glass. That's cool. Uh, uh, it's uh, it's part of a series. Uh, I have the Raphael one too. I forget the and gentleman. I'll find it. Make sure I tag him in the show notes. But he's he has some artists paint them, and then he puts it on like he gets imprinted a glass and does like a select run. And it's a pretty cool thing. And I the beer tonight is also local. Um, I'm drinking uh, Overplayed, which is an IPA from Hitchhiker, which is local to here to Pittsburgh. Another uh, pretty good local brewery. They put out a lot of different stuff. This is just a sort of standard IPA. Tonight I was in a hurry and picked more. I was more worried about the glass and picking out a cool glass to kind of fit fit the guest. So, uh, yeah. Is a is a four stripe black belt a thing? I don't know anything about martial arts. Here's the thing about any type of thing. Can anybody hear me from my side? Yes, Kyle. Yeah, yeah, we can hear. You. Okay. Yeah. I'm losing you all, so we'll hopefully we'll have two recordings and be able. No, to you're like, good. You're good. I'm telling you, you you're not dropping out at all. Yeah, we haven't lost you at all. Yeah. Here's okay. here's the thing about any martial arts belt. It has, you cannot compare them. Yeah. The only place you can compare them is almost, almost within the same school, potentially within the same affiliation, meaning a group of schools that are under one central control. Like for example, my Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu school is part of the Pedro Sauer uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Association. So there is a standard of quality associated with all of his black belts and to a fairly decent degree because Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has the capability to test each other. You know, I can go and roll with somebody I've never met. And if I'm a blue belt and they're a blue belt and we're about the same, same 
size and age, we're probably going to be about the same skill level. Um, whereas you take someone who's a karate, whatever belt versus another, you know, from some other school, you have no idea what's going to happen because uh, there's just no real way to compare them or to take someone from like a completely different style, like an Aikido person versus a Wing Chun person. The belts have no, no meaning. Um, sometimes you could say, well, it's, you know, it's a question of how long it takes. Like a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt takes about 10 years, whereas a Judo black belt takes about five years. You'd say, oh, well, that, you know, the BJJ guy must be twice as good. Well, you put the Judo guy out with the BJJ guy, the Judo guy is going to throw him on his head. Well, once they're on the ground, though, the Jiu-Jitsu guy is going to probably fold the Judo guy like a pretzel. So it's all over the place. That's crazy. Is, is there, oh, I'm the host now. Hey, is there like, <laughs> um, I'll let Kyle back in if he comes back in. Yeah, see, he's back in. There is. is is there a difference? I guess I don't know. Not not knowing much about like BJJ and, and judo, like can those are are they like that significantly different? Where like one dude's just going to dominate the other at the same skill level? So here's here's the joke. Um, Brazilian jiu jitsu actually stands for basically just judo. Uh, <laughs> and then, but here's the thing: that Brazilian jiu jitsu specialized for the ground game. So a lot of the fundamental moves you get in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu come from Judo ground moves. And in my particular Jiu-Jitsu style, we train stand-up as well. So we do learn some basic stand-up as well as basic self-defense standing. We don't just flop on the ground and say, now attack me like that, that uh, uh, Simpsons cartoon. But the <laughs> thing is, if I go against someone who's a judoka and they're decent, they're going to throw me around like a rag doll. Cause that's not, I mean, I might spend five to 10% of my time doing that. But as soon as I put them on the ground, again, this is, you know, similar size, age, that sort of thing. They're going to have a much harder time. Cause that's where I spend 85, 90% of the, of my training time. And that's, that's the way it goes. And, but those are just two arts. You, we don't, we don't hit each other. Like there's no striking. So you put us in with a striker, like a boxer, the boxer is going to beat you silly. But if you get into a clinch and you put the boxer on the ground, he's, he's done in 30 yeah, seconds. He's done. He has no defense, right? Yeah. That's awesome. You said a couple other things like I don't I don't think I've even heard before. Like that last one, Qdoba. Did you are you, you trying to <laughs> Qdoba? Oh, Aikido? I, no, not that one. I've heard of that one. What's the other one? Uh, Wing Chun. Wang Chun. I have no idea what that is, man. I yeah, thought that Wing, was a band. So Wing Chun is the art that Bruce Lee first studied. Well, actually, technically, Bruce Lee first studied Tai Chi. Uh, and some other kung fu that his father taught him. But then he, he it, so most people think, oh, Bruce Lee, he wanted to be, um, he wanted to fight off bullies. No, Bruce Lee was the bully. He had a gang in his school when he was in grade school. Um, he was shipped to the United States when he was 18 because he was getting into so many fights that the, he was, they were, his parents were concerned that he was going to be put in jail in Hong Kong. So Bruce Lee was the bully. Uh, and when he decided he wanted to learn how to fight even better so he could beat up more people, he learned Wing Chun from, uh, from a guy named Ip Man, who's probably the most famous Wing Chun practitioner. Um, but he soon found out that Wing Chun is not very, uh, at least the Wing Chun you find these days is not very um, functional, is the word most people like to use. And that's why he ended up expanding and learning Western boxing. He was interested in fencing. He learned some judo and some ground skills. And he packaged that together and he created his own martial art called Jeet Kune Do. But that, so that's actually a funny story about jujitsu is that that's where I, uh, Richard and I met and I had no idea when we did uh, the 2019 uh, BJJ Smackdown that um, 
His name's escaping me now. Jeremiah Grossman. Jeremiah, that's right. Jeremiah Grossman put together. Yeah. And uh, I think I was I actually looking back, I know exactly the moment. It was you and I and another gentleman from Canada talking, yeah. just having a casual conversation. And like, you know, you were there and like all these other like as I like to think, you know, the famous, you know, infosec cybersecurity professionals of like our, our, our lifetime, we're all like, there, all these different sorts, but you just didn't know because one, I didn't have your headshot. You're not walking around <laughs> with a Twitter handle on you. Right? Like I just thought, and it was kind of probably <laughs> relieving at times. Like you're just, everybody was just a normal person to me. Here's another person that, you know, was there to have a good you know day of jujitsu, you know? So. Yeah. It was awesome. I'm so thankful. I mean, I, here's a dirty secret. I basically went to black hat that year just for that. I, I mean, I worked my company's booth, but I was there because I wanted to go to that event and I'm so glad we were able to have it. Couldn't have it last year, obviously because of COVID and won't this year, but at least I'm guessing we won't. Um, and I wouldn't go to, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a shoulder surgery in a few weeks okay. uh, to fix my rotator cuff and bicep. So I'll be out for many months. So maybe, you know, who knows, maybe in 2022, we'll be back. You can yeah. still come in and cheer somebody, right? Just smack on the door with like your good hand. <laughs> yeah. <Yay. laughs> go cow. There are some hardcore people who will who will literally tape or strap their bad arm to their body and just oh, like no. one arm. But I'm not that good. I'll tell you what, at 37, I wouldn't even think about doing that. Like, no, <laughs> no, thank you. I mean, I know a guy that's got his rotator cuff fixed and like he was too excited to get back to jiu-jitsu. And like he went back a week early and like semi hurt himself again. Oh, it's just like, why yeah. are you doing that? Like, you don't need to do that. Like, it'll still be there when you come back. Exactly. Yes. And I think, I mean, as you know, for training all the martial arts, it's like you you start training with the same people and like you see them getting slightly better than you. And you're like, Oh, you're like, you know, cause some people just pick up things and some people are more athletic than other people. Right. And, and some people just get the concepts of the moves and can apply that to their game a lot quicker than other people can. Oh yeah, I, I love it. For me, it's like not only just, you know, keeping my cardio up and keeping me athletic in my late thirties, you know, as best as I can, but it's also like a mental thing for me. It's mental health. It's, it's that, you know, some people like to punch a punching bag and some people like to, I don't know, run marathons, right? And, and clear the head. For me, it's like I go to jujitsu and then I forget about everything else for that hour and a half, right? You know what I mean? I think that's oh, yeah. probably why it's hard to get away. Like when you have surgery like that, you don't want to just like stop. Like, I, I think you get that feeling that you're going to go like stir crazy. Like I need to be active doing something, right? Well, I haven't, I haven't done it for uh, just over a year now. I think my last class was March 15th of 2020 because of COVID. So during that whole time, no, no physical jujitsu. Um, I did do a podcast for a martial arts podcast where I put on my gi, <laughs> just <Nice>. the top <laughs> with a shirt underneath it. It was like kind of a joke, uh, but that, that was the only time I've even, even worn the clothing. Um, but one of the things I've done is I've been watching tons of t uh, instructionals and tutorials because I've got all these I've collected over the years. And I, and just today, today is the 90th day of the year. It's, you know, March 31st. Oh, okay. um, uh, I finished a program I started called 90 days with Danaher, where oh, I boy. took, I had, I had, I, th I think I had 84 John Danaher videos, you know, individually, you know, uh, 10 or 11 yeah. series of videos that I just watched eat one each day. And then I threw some YouTube videos in there to, to round out the 90. Um, and it, it was it's very helpful. I mean, I'm looking forward to trying some of his stuff yeah, um, when I get back. He's great. David, he's like the, uh, I don't know how you describe him today. He's just, uh, he's the team he's built. They call it the Danaher death squad. Like the team that he, they're that good. They're just, they beat everybody. His techniques are amazing. I, I have a bunch of his uh, you know, tutorials as well. And they're great to watch. The only thing is he's very monotone. 
So yes. I have to do it in like 15, 20 minute <laughs> chunks. Otherwise, like my mind starts like trailing off here about. Something yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. On. Yeah, well, I watch like, them at one and a half times speed minimum. Yeah, so uh, sounds like a chipmunk. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> yeah. No, he doesn't. <laughs> that's, how, that's how slow. Even at like, one and a half speed, he just goes the normal, right? Yep. He just goes the normal. Or I guess average, I guess, is really, uh, whatever. I listen to everything at one and a half times speed, like podcasts. I do that. Um, I don't watch video, like regular YouTube videos. Like uh, I watch a lot of military history videos online. I don't speed those up because then it looks weird. But if it's I, just I audio. That was the thing. Oh, yeah. You see, like, I mean, that, a lot of like the World War II history, uh, a lot of those videos are they already feel fast. Right. Mm -hmm. So like when they, when they show me like the, the, uh, I don't know, improved footage, like you get, you guys are marching real fast, right? <laughs> right. You can't pump that at one and a half speed. Cause then they're going to be like, I don't know, well, three stooge running down there. Well, one of my favorite channels is this, this one called the operations room. And this guy does the, the most amazing breakdowns of battles. Like he'll, he'll take, He's done the first three days of the ground war in the Gulf War in, in uh, 1991. He's done the first few days of the air war. And he, he maps everything out and shows you exactly what happened minute by minute. So I'm taking that in at regular speed because it's just so good. I mean, if they had had that level of instruction when I was a cadet, uh, it would have been so much more interesting. But just having someone talking in front of you was not as exciting as this guy's videos. How long were you in the Air Force? Uh, I was in the Air Force a total of... Uh, just under 11 years. So four years as a cadet and uh, a little less than seven years uh, active duty. When you were like trying to transition out, like, did you kind of have like an idea of what you wanted to do or were you just kind of like, ah, not this anymore? Well, before I, before I went into the AFSERT, my exit plan was to become a financial planner. So I was, I was trading heavily. In fact, I was day trading oh, yeah. on the Unclass Network uh, nice. Oh, that's uh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, with, with the first sort of systems that were offering that. Uh, my whole office, the whole planning office at Air Intelligence Agency was so into stock trading um, that it was just addictive. So yeah, I was trading. Now I had a system I was following and uh, all, my, all my sell signals one day flashed, sell, 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 get out. And I, I ended up avoiding one of the big crashes that happened at the end of the 90s. And then I didn't really go back into individual stock trading. I was also, say I was spending about half my like half my day at like another four hours every day at, at home, figuring out what my trades were going to be once the market opened. So it was, it was just a little bit too much time. Now so I just buy the market. Talking with you about like the, you know, what, when you stopped uh, imbibing in the uh, uh, alcoholic juices, you know, <laughs> thinking, thinking like just putting the time frames together. So that's like about 96, 97, 98. So like yeah. you're looking at like right at the tech bubble, right? Was there anything that you were like super hot into that, that you, you definitely got out? I mean, you know, not, you don't have to like spill any, you know, secret sauce here, but like, were oh, you, you in on like the wise? Yahoo's? Yeah. Did you have like the good stuff back then? Or were like you sock just... monkey? No, I had, um, I had things that, so I had, I followed the system called, uh, or that the investors business daily guy came up with, I forget, whatever guy created that newspaper, I followed his system. So I was in a bunch of like stocks that nobody would recognize, like, like retail and things like that, really not technology because they didn't have earnings. That's a thing. I had oh, companies yeah. that had earnings, but the problem was if the market gets hammered, everybody goes down. So um, the system is basically, it, it, it helps you avoid catastrophic losses and lets you ride a few good winners. Cause that's all you really need. If you're doing, if you're trading individual stocks, avoid catastrophes, get a few winners and you make your money. Um, it takes a lot of discipline and a lot of, a lot of research, which these days it's, that's not worth my time. So I just, 
I just so, buy the market. The so what forever. you're saying is you're heavy into GameStop right now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, I have diamond hands, definitely. <laughs> yeah, that's... So, so we kind of brought this up a little segue, and I just in that same time frame, I was kind of keeping with that. You said that you the first uh, version of maybe out is it came out? You said '94 it came out. Tau. Oh, uh, so Dow Network Security Monitoring came out in uh, 2004. 2004, right. I'm yeah. going my time. I, I wrote my first white paper in, I published my first white paper in 1999. Uh, prior to that, I was writing private educational tutorials for the analysts on the ops floor. Basically, I, was, I worked the night shift. And it was fairly quiet during the night. And I would write up, I would find things of interest and I would write it up. Uh, like literally on a piece of paper, like I would print out the transcript of the act, the activity, whether it was benign or, or malicious or suspicious, and I would hand annotate. This is what is happening in this transcript. You know, the guy is trying to access the CGI bin and that, that, whatever it was, and then I would photocopy it and I would hand it out to all the analysts in the morning. So I was doing a ton of that, and then I decided, like in the tradition of the the white papers of the day, that you know would get end up in frac or whatever. I said, all right, I'm going to write a white paper because we were seeing this activity that that was being called uh, reset scans by SANS. And I said, those are not reset scans. There's no such thing as a reset scan. Um, what's happening is someone is spoofing uh, your IP addresses. They're sin flooding somebody. And then that victim is sending the resets or the synax in some cases back to the spoofed party. And so we would see the same activity and we we're like, oh, that means this, this dude's getting sin flooded. Uh, and SANS was, you know, Steve Northcutt was writing about, oh, this is a reset scan or a Synax scan, even though you can't get anything valuable off of a reset or a Synax scan or nothing really, nothing really that valuable. So I wrote my first paper about that, published that in 99. And then in 2000, um, Pearson or Addison Wesley approached me and said, hey, we'd like you to write a book about security because we've seen you've been talking and writing a little bit very, you know, very early. And I said, I don't know enough yet to write a book because I'd only been in the field a few years. I said, if you're still interested in a few years, I'll you know, I'll see if I have something worth saying. And by 2003, I felt like I had enough material because I had been uh, consulting, doing our, you know, incident response consulting uh, for Foundstone with uh, Kevin Mandia and Keith Jones and Matt Pepe and um, a group there. And that's when I wrote uh, that first book. And it came out in July of 2004. I actually had Matt Pepe, uh, Chris Procise, and Will Chang as teachers when i was in grad school at cmu in 2006 to yeah. 2007 time frame yeah that's what was fascinating i i learned the foundstone system which was you first of all you publish a book that was hacking exposed yep. um, the second thing you do is you write you write classes based around the book and you teach those classes and that gets people's attention as well and then you sell them consulting services and then finally you <laughs> launch a product off of it and that was the foundstone vulnerability scanner uh, and then, of course, we had a very small IR team because when all that stuff fails, you need somebody to call. But that was that's what's funny about that time. Nobody liked to talk about incident response because supposedly if you did security right, you wouldn't be breached. And yet people were getting breached left, right and center. And so we found Stone had, you know, Kevin Mandia's team. I was I joined his team because I read his first book, the incident response book that came out in 2001. And I said, oh, my God, this guy's got his act together. I have to I have to work for this guy. Uh, turns out once I joined the team, it was absolute chaos, but we were working all the coolest cases at the time. At least, you know, I thought they were pretty cool. And that's how I got sort of roped into that uh, universe. Roped into it. So you, you said earlier, like the, you would, 
look or you were doing analysis on the ops floor? Like what was the ops floor? Yeah. Like, so where, the, where were you? Yeah. So I was in a place called Security Hill in uh, Building 2000 in uh, San Angelo or San Antonio, Texas uh, on Kelly Air Force Base, which is now part of Lackland Air Force Base. The two bases were literally right next to each other and eventually it all became Lackland. And we had a, a set of offices inside of Air Intelligence Agency. There were about 100 of us in the Air Force Computer Emergency Response Team. Uh, we had the defensive mission. The other half of the, uh, the Information Warfare Center had the offensive mission. And we were detecting intrusions from criminals, nation and, states. And this was back Everybody. in like the late 90s? Yeah, yeah. We, we deployed our first sensors in the mid 90s and it was based on the the it was actually called the network security monitor that was the software that a guy named todd heberlein developed todd heberlein is one of the the unsung heroes of the internet he he is the he is the true father of network security monitoring because he invented the software that bears its name and had the data that was the core nsm data it generated alerts it generated session logs and it generated pcap or transcripts those are the three original pillars of NSM. And he created it with the software that he, he, he wrote as a That's graduate awesome. student. Um, and we deployed it at the wow. AppCert. And um, that's how it started. I learned all that. That's, that's where it came from. Really? That's crazy. Well, what was it like kind of looking at the, uh, the difference between you know, 1996 and 2021, like the, the attack vectors? back then like do they do they kind of seem like trivial uh as as we've evolved as uh like cyber intelligence analysts and stuff uh the operating systems have changed a little bit right the the amount of things on the internet are are so much different than they were back in 1995 like if you have any i don't know sort of opinion on how that's that's kind of shaped over the years yeah um the first thing that comes to mind is that back then everything was was when uh, start everything was Unix, and it was primarily Solaris. Yeah. And we had to find someone in the unit who knew anything about Windows. Um, we had to actually select somebody. Dustin, oh Dustin, forgive me. He works he worked at Microsoft. I can't remember where he is now, but Dustin was an NCO, and we convinced him to go learn and get his uh, MCSE. So we had somebody in the unit who understood N NT forks because I think NT four came out in ninety seven or ninety eight oh or something NT4. like that. Oh my god! Oh my god! Right. So we <laughs> yeah. we you know and he's like guys I don't want to do this because like you, if you were cool you knew Solaris right <laughs> yeah. like I learned Solaris in ninety seven at um, uh, when I got deployed to Lakenheath during the one of the wars in Bosnia and so I volunteered to like I took classes after after work and learned all you know, everything's Solaris. So you, if you knew Solaris, you were cool. So that's the first difference. Nowadays, everything is Windows. Although in the cloud, everything is Linux. And obviously, many, many more servers are Linux. So that's the biggest thing that comes to mind is back then, Solaris was everything. Um, the second thing was, as far as the types of attacks, it was all server side. So you would have um, two, two main attack paths. One would be stolen credentials. And the other one would be exploiting uh, vulnerabilities or misconfigurations. Uh, a good example of the, of the um, credential issue would be what happened with Cliff Stoll. Everything there was stolen credentials. You know, you'd, you'd log into a system, you get onto it, you'd have privileges, you would start sniffing, you would get more credentials, you would use those credentials to log into the systems. Other, so it was all just credential-based. And all of it was happening 
at least in the beginning, over ClearText, over Telnet and our login and all these other ClearText protocols. So we would generate transcripts and see exactly what the intruders were doing all the time. In fact, it was the, the, the app store was broken into two functions, batch and real-time. Real-time was based off of IDS alerts that came off of the NSM, and batch was based on the transcripts that came from the NSM. So the batch analysts would literally look at every single ClearText transaction that occurred on every Air Force base every day. And they would manually look for anything that looked suspicious. They would look at every Telnet session, every FTP session, you name it. And they could tell when they saw someone log in over Telnet and they said, this doesn't look like what this guy does. I, I'm very familiar with how he operates on a daily basis. And they would figure out, oh, somebody stole his credentials and it's a Chinese hacker or whatever the case is. Um, and then of course, on the other side, you had your exploitation, you know, buffer overflows and because remember, buffer overflows became big after Aleph's one, was it Aleph one wrote the first one and then Mudge wrote one. And um, that all happened in the mid to late 90s as well. Someone was passing around a meme today on Twitter, speaking of like how, how ubiquitous, like, uh, you know, overflowing a buffer was. Like it was, it was just, uh, it was a, a grandma and a younger lady. <laughs> and she says, uh, the grandma's like, yeah, you just have to overflow the buffer and get into the, you know, the IP that way. <laughs> and the, right. and the, the younger girl, the granddaughter's like, okay, grandma, <laughs> <laughs> right. it's easy to get it. I mean, but I believe it. I mean, I believe that that being a thing, you know, that was just everywhere back then. It, it was, was. I, I learned, was. I learned how that's worked by reading Ed Scotus's book, uh, Counterhack. He, he had the most elegant description of how a buffer overflow worked that, uh, I learned it basically verbatim. And then what I had to teach my classes, I would just repeat exactly what Ed had, had written because it was so well done. And then I would say, if you want to read the original, just read Ed Scotus's book. <laughs> when, and when, when was that? When was his book? I like, want to say his first book came out in, it was the early 2000s. It might've been 2004 was Counterhack or maybe that was Counterhack Reloaded. Um, yeah, I can't quite remember. Just to get one more one more point on that, and I, I hope I don't I don't forget exactly what I was gonna say here, but like what when when you're writing these reports or you're trying to annotate uh, you know some sort of thing that you've seen and you know it's gonna escalate to an analyst, how difficult is it for you to pick the right words to convey the right sort of importance to what you would see that because you know it's gonna escalate, right? So so how how do you kind of guess the the technical ability of the person that's going to read this in the very end? Oh, I see. Um, these were not reports per se. Yeah, I, let me take you back to what it was like when we did this. <laughs> we, we would record activity on sheets of paper that I had designed, like D&D &D character forms. That's what they kind of looked oh like. And when people saw activity, they would fill out the form with a pen. That's what we had back then. And so when I, when I talk about annotating transcripts, it would be a printed ASCII transcript of a, of a session. And I would, I would underline with my, with my pen, like VTI bin, this is the directory where Microsoft IIS 4.0 stores, whatever. And here in the next line, the intruder is passing a parameter that is taking whatever action. And here is the, see all these dots? This is a directory traversal where he is jumping out of where he should be on the system to get access to the, the password file that he is now downloading. And here is what the, that's the right. type of thing it was. So okay. it, was, it was so that when an analyst, another analyst, right? Cause I was 
uh, I started out as an analyst, or actually, I started out as a web admin because I, I convinced the commander I knew, I knew enough HTML to redesign the web page. That got me into the unit. Uh, I was desperate. I spent a year trying to get into that unit once I learned it existed. But um, I almost like that episode of Seinfeld where I can't remember, is it George? He just shows up and starts working, or maybe Kramer. Oh, it's Kramer. Just, yeah. Kramer starts yeah. working with jo yeah. uh, George, uh, George's dad. Yeah. I basically did that at the absurd. I almost literally just showed up and started working and then just added myself to every open shift. I added myself to the month long class on, on how to become an analyst, all that kind of stuff. And then six months later, I was in charge of the whole unit uh, once all our senior officers left. It's funny. But, yeah, we always, we've talked to so many people that are just like, I didn't start in this at all. I tried, I was doing something else and I know what I wanted to do. And you just got to bust your butt and, you know, get yourself crowbarred in there and you know, <laughs> knowing the right things and, and the right people. When you were doing like the papers back in the day, like I think this is about the same time frame we're still talking about, like who were you like publishing with? Like what existed back then to like, you know, I mean, was it USENIX type like places that like had these type of like you know, news places? Groups. I mean, I'm guessing IEEE is like uh, is what you're probably going to say something like that, but I don't I don't know. Oh, it wasn't anything so formal. Um, the place that everybody went to was Packetstorm. Really? I don't know if you guys even have heard of that, but I don't, I don't know that. Do you, that's where they had all like the shell code back in the day, right? Yeah. It was a repository for two things. Basically one was white papers and the other one was, you know, bits of C or scripts or whatever. Right. And that's what you did is you, you submitted and said, Hey, I've got the paper. Would you host it? And they're like, yeah, sure. So my original papers that I can recall, they were in two places. One was my own website, which was hosted on the free space that I got out of, you know, uh, tech, San Antonio, Texas Roadrunner cable, whatever it was, right. and then it was on on Packetstorm, and they're they're still, I believe, in the Packetstorm archive on, you know, the Internet Archive. They're still out there. Yeah, I mean, I I'm, I've used Packetstorm. I mean, I think Packetstorm is still a thing. Where, like, I need a payload for like a bin shell, you know, that's like thirty bytes in length, right? And yeah, like... that's the thing. I don't. Uh, so people talk about how tough it is to do certain things. Um, not that I'm saying like, oh, in my day, it was so tough. But literally, I mean, you think about the revolution of something like uh, Metasploit, where oh, uh -huh. everything was packaged for you. And I'm not saying it makes it life so much easier, but it really did in the sense that you didn't have to string all this stuff together on your own. Like, you know, the little bit from here and a little bit from there. So that that was what was just amazing when uh, HD Moore published that. It was like, holy cow, things just became a lot easier. It became the place to um, add your code, not just have a one-off. I mean, it's the, kind of the thing we've been trying to do with Zeke is if you're going to write any type of network detection logic at all, just write it as a Zeke script. Don't, don't create some new Python thing that people yeah. have to... No, no, no. Just learn the Zeke language, write it as a Zeke script, and suddenly it plugs into all these other capabilities, you know, session reassembly and tracking, all these things that you get for free. And as well as it's not part of that community. So that's kind of like what it was like when Metasploit came out is people started making sure their stuff would be compatible and workable with Metasploit. I was actually talking to a guy recently who did wrote a Zeek script for a protocol for like a warship, you know, and he was talking about like, oh. and he's like, I just did this like, and like the client I work for didn't even know I did it, but like, I need to analyze the traffic. So I just wrote it. <laughs> I'm, yeah. like, I'm like, that's we're, wild, man. We're hoping to make that even easier. Um, it's a different language, right? It's like semi-C, right? It's kind of C-like, right? Or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, telling me. here's the thing that for years, Zeke has been, uh, and you know, if you don't really know what Zeke is, it used to be called Bro back in the day when it was first created in the 90s. Wait, it's not Bro anymore? No, in, in the fall of 2018, we, uh, I say we, the leadership team renamed the project from Bro to Zeke. 
because that whole there was like a whole issue with like bro culture. Yeah, was yeah, wasn't there a brocon also? Did we have a bro? Yeah, it was a brocon. I've got a I've got a mug up here that says brocon twenty eighteen. <laughs> but that was the last year it was bro, and it's been Zeke ever since. Oh, I didn't um, know. That. Zeke was the user ID that bro originally ran under at Berkeley, I believe, is what what Zeke comes from. Okay, I think uh... that's what it is. What it's from. And yeah, I don't I know. It's from the this. Far Side comic. What what what's the uh, what's what's the content of the comic? Because I, I I love some Gary Larson Far Sides. Oh, I don't I don't remember. Oh, that's what that that's what my dad had growing up Far Side and Calvin and Hobbes. Like we had those <laughs> legit like comic books. Like they were like almost like paperback books, and that, those are the two that we had all all over the house. Solid solid reading. Is it Zeke the dog with the chainsaw? Could be. I don't know. <laughs> Zeke. <laughs> Yeah, there's one. Uh, there's one here with a uh, guy trying to pet a dog with a chainsaw, and the caption with the uh, owner saying in the background, "I wouldn't do that, Mister Old Zeke's liable to fire that sucker up." <laughs> that could be it. That's, that sounds like Vern Vern Paxson's sense of humor. Oh, man, Lord, Lord, <laughs> Gary Larson far sides were the best. My mom had the tearaway. My mom was a teacher, and uh, she would take us to school every morning. And every morning we'd run into her classroom first before I went to like my other, you know, my real class. And we rip off the calendar and like just flip through ahead on all the Gary Larson far side. <laughs> that stuff is so good. Nice. I miss it. I wish so I, he's. I'm sorry. He's still alive, right? Gary Larson's still alive. You know, where's, where's producer Jimmy? Can he get me a uh, a Wikipedia check on <laughs> Wikipedia check from producer Jimmy? <laughs> is Gary Larson alive? <laughs> he's gonna look into it. All right, sorry. <laughs> There's no, there's no producer Jimmy. Yes, there is. <laughs> um, so I was re- uh, like, one. I, I'm gonna skip ahead to like nowadays because I, I, I kind of want to touch on it because I, I uh, there's something in your one percenter, you know, blog post that we we're talking that you mentioned, and I like read through it again today, and I was like, one of the things that Keon was near the end, and it was the whole the post exploitation. I think past, like I'm not an off sense of a security person, so like the pest side of stuff, but yeah. like. That kind of what you wrote there is kind of what I've always thought about too. And I mean, I'm I, this never, you know, why we as uh, the, you know, security professionals put out these tools. And it's kind of like the point of like, I've always thought about, it's like, it, you know, it's that vulnerability disclosure sort of thing too. It's like, but I don't do it and push the hand of the vendor to fix the problem, like the thing. But I remember recently there's a vendor and I don't know who it exactly is, but one of the groups I, like I was on, like I think the exchange stuff came out and they literally put out like a GitHub tool like that day. <laughs> and I was like, give Microsoft a little time to patch this stuff before like we start giving the, like I, I, and I, I kind of like uh, resonated with what you wrote. Like you're kind of giving the adversary a hand. I'm sure all the other red teamer and, and pen testers we've had on so far might beg to differ, but I, I always feel like it is kind of given the upper hand, you know, and that's kind of what I think you're, what you're trying to allude to, right? I mean, in my, I don't want to paraphrase what you're trying to say. I know I jumped way to the end of that article. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. So here's the thing: this, any, well, any cons, any topic in security is so complicated that it is not, it cannot be discussed intelligently on Twitter. In fact, you may have noticed I haven't been on Twitter for two weeks. I, I may have given up on InfoSec Twitter, honestly. I, I, I saw you made some people mad a while ago. Yeah, I, that got so out of hand with yeah, people thinking they knew what I was saying when they had no idea what I was even talking about. It people, just, people are good at reading minds. It's, yeah, right. Is that what it is? Wow, okay. Yeah. Lots, of, lots, of, lots of mind readers. There's a yeah. lot of mind readers on, on uh, I wish I had that talent. 
<laughs> but yeah, so as far as the, the, the offensive side goes, there are so many, just like to zoom into that part of it, there are so many angles to the, to the offensive side. I am fully sympathetic with the people who for years bang their head against the wall, trying to get a vendor to fix some issue and only by the virtue of dumping code even responsibly, you know, after after months of trying to negotiate and all that, they finally got the vendor to, to, to move by virtue of having a POC. I totally see that. The issue that that I tried to address with the security 1% and then later on with my, uh, I did a post about why I, I think offense is a net, net negative for, for the digital ecosystem, to use fancy words, was that, I, I mean, many of us came up through this idea that um, there's a certain mindset associated with, with security and in some ways, it's, it's a cult around offense. And what I realized is that for some people and for some organizations, that works very well for them. And I realized that my entire career, I had essentially worked for those organizations. I had worked for the United States government you know, in, in the military. I had worked as a contractor for the same United States government. I had worked at a high-end security firm. I had worked at a Fortune 5 company that could fund a 40-person security team to fight threats of all types. However, not everyone is like that. And that's what the purpose of the Security 1% uh, blog was, was to say just how many companies are out there that need security compared to how many actually have any type of security and what do the numbers look like? And my, my numbers came down to that perhaps there are 4,000 of the conservatively numbered 400,000 organizations that need security. And those 4,000 are the 1%. And what you'll find is if, if I were to just say, by the way, just out into the blue, there are 4,000 decent security, you know, organizations with decent security. I think most people would laugh. They'd say 4,000, you're crazy. Just in the United States, by the way, this is my estimate. I'd, most people would say, you're crazy. No way it's 4,000. So that means, you know, another word of magnitude down, that means it's about 400. And now people start to think, okay, I could kind of maybe see 400. And then the 0.01%, that's the, the top 40. Those are the Lockheeds, the Googles, the GEs, um, Bank of America, organizations like that. So if you're in that top 01, top 0.1, or even the top 1%, there are certain parts of security that'll work for you. You probably can afford to have a red team. You know, oh, you've yeah. got a blue team. You probably can't afford to have a red team. So if you have a red team, you don't want to have to have them be trying to develop all this stuff on their own. It's much better for them to leverage what's publicly available. And so the whole idea of having an offensive driven security model works because they can get that code. They can put it to work. They can see if their blue team can detect it. That's all great. That's a positive cycle. They get better security out of it. But what if you're not in that top 1%? Then when all that code gets dropped, you don't have a red team that benefits from it. It ends up in some bad guy's hands. And then a week later, you're getting hit with ransomware. And honestly, ransomware is what pushed it over the edge for me the last couple of years, just seeing hospitals, schools, utilities, all of these organizations that just do not have the expertise, the budget, whatever it is to defend themselves, just getting destroyed by ransomware. And we're hearing ransoms now of, of you know, 10 million, up to 50 million the other day I heard on uh, the Mandiant uh, Threat Intel webcast. So this is all, you know, this whole thing we talk about, like, make it more difficult for the adversary, impose costs on the adversary, raise the, no, we are making it way, way too easy to be an adversary now. You don't have to spend any time developing your own stuff because somebody's going to drop a POC and you'll be using it that day if you're a sharp intruder. Oh, yeah. I mean, even think about, think about just like going on the dark web, right? And going to an exploit forum, you grab what you need 
for you know a couple hundred bitcoins or you know, I'm sorry, not bitcoins, obviously because bitcoins <laughs> are very expensive. But you spend a couple of bitcoins, and then you're the emotech guys, and you're just cranking out like malware, and you're gonna make that money back like almost instantaneously. Instantly, yeah. you're gonna live in squalor. Apparently, you don't even have to go in the dark still, web. You just you know, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Unless, unless Microsoft pulls off, you know, the exploit code from GitHub like they yeah. did. You know, and, but, and, but, and I'm not saying, by the way, that I have the answers here, or I'm not saying that well, we need to ban bad. You know, we need to ban uh, ban offense because offense is bad. I'm saying that the way things are right now is broken. This is like yeah. living in the Roman Empire around 300 in the 300s in the fourth century, and the barbarians are constantly invading, and we're we're trying to figure out like. What's wrong? Like, we need to do something differently. Our strategy of paying off the barbarians is not working. Yeah. And we're looking at the fall of the empire, you know, in, a, in another hundred and, well, technically a hundred and, well, 476 is when the Roman empire officially fell, but it had been dead a long, lot, lot, uh, <laughs> uh, many, many, many years earlier. Of course, the Eastern empire continued for another thousand years, but that's another story. Um, but that's where, I, that's where I feel like we're at. We're at this situation where things are falling around falling down around us and we're the dog in the fire if we're saying this is fine it, things it, have to change it's a really great observation too because kyle and i have been in meetings as part of working groups in inside of the uh the industry where there are the lockheeds and the booz allens and everybody that's able to handle themselves in security and also part of that group is like mom and pop shop mom and pop shop down the road that's making o-rings for like uh an engine that's going inside of like uh an f-35 right yeah and that that company's liable to get whacked too and they don't have the size of a lockheed or a boeing to be able to to fight that that uh sort of system they don't they, they can't even set like um two-factor authentication up right and you want them to all of a sudden like IDS, you need you need a whole I mean, bunch of stuff in there. And they're like, I don't know how to do that at scale the way that you guys do it because it's just me. Like I'm the guy. I have to make sure that these guys get their email, and I have to make sure that like I'm not getting whacked by North Korea on the back end. Right. Even 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 just to spin off that point, you're talking about the mom and pop. I mean, look at recently in the last three weeks, Molson Coors got ransomware, and they like this is not sense of information. They the article I read said they halted production mm -hmm. of their distribution. So that tells you, did that cross over into like their, you know, operational technology network to shut down systems that like do the bottling or print the labels or fill the, you know, the, you know, beer into the bottles. And you're like, you're, you have to assume it's that. And it's like, that's a, a company that has a lot of money. I would assume they have a lot of money and you would assume they have a security team, but I'm guessing the security team is probably less than a half dozen people maybe i don't you know i don't right. know right and like that's it's really interesting like when i was reading your article i'm like man for i as you said four thousand like no way four thousand companies in the united states have good security posture or good security yeah. teams right you're just like they just don't there, yeah. there's no way there's no way you know what i mean like in, in my head of like there's no way you can have that like you know and if they did i feel like we'd be a lot better off and we have a lot less ransomware attacks that you see daily dumped to the data leak sites that i get emails about every day right yeah. Well, it feels like inequity, way, right? Yeah. The way that the way that we are architected, the way that the economic incentives work, everything right now means that offense scales almost perfectly and defense doesn't scale at all. Like you could say, well, wait a minute, we have all the, like, I, you know, I work at a company that funds an open source project. Like we, we, we hire open source developers, just like, you know, uh, IBM did with Red Hat. We do that with Corelight. So I'm, 
I'm working almost all the time on open free solutions for people. I have some new stuff that'll be coming out soon that hopefully will help people use the open source stuff. And yet you have to be in that 1% basically to make use of it. All these books I've got back here that I wrote, they're impenetrable to most people because it, it is so specialized. And, and, and as that one or two person shop, if you even have that, right? You know, oh, yeah. outside of the IT organization, lucky. you're lucky to have that. They don't have time to be dealing with mm. this kind of stuff. So what's the, you know, what is the answer? Do we have to go to a completely different situation where most everything is in the cloud and we rely on cloud providers to do it? I don't know. That hasn't worked out so hot up to this point. We had a lot of cloud ventures come back and say, well, hold up. We didn't say we were going to be responsible for security. You know, you leave your S3 bucket open. That's your problem. Yeah, right. right. You know, it's, we, we just well, gave you the machine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's your fault. How, <laughs> how many books do you have up there behind you that are yours? Are they all yours? Uh, okay, so no, not obviously all of these. Um, my, I think I've authored or co-authored seven books at this point. I think the eighth one, my goal is to have the eighth one out in the next month or so before I get the shoulder worked on. Uh, that'll be Best of DAO Security Blog Volume 4, Beyond DAO Security Blog. So it'll be stuff that hasn't been in the blog that I'll be publishing. And then um, I think that'll be my 13th book that I've written or contributed to. So for example, there's some books where um, you know, I have a chapter in it or something like that. Um, but yeah, books that I've actually like, I was the, I That's was the awesome. guy for most of it was, you know, DAO, Extrusion, Real Digital Forensics with, with uh, Curtis Rose and Keith Jones, um, Practice and Security Monitoring, and then four volumes of Best Of. So when you go through uh, writing a book, like what, I don't know, who, who do you publish through? I don't, I don't read a lot of books, so I'll. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I've initially. I've used Richard's books in class back in the day. That's oh, how. there you go. Yeah, so initially all my books were with with Addison Wesley and Pearson. Um, those are the first three, and then Practice of Network Screen Monitoring was with No Starch, and then the last. Uh, well, okay, I did have a book on stretching that I wrote uh, and self published. That was my first self published book. Stretching. With a, yeah, stretching. Like literal human being uh, ligaments and muscles. Yeah, yeah. I'll show you guys. I know the. Uh, <laughs> he's going to stretch. Be able to see it, but everybody, see he it. left and he's stretching. I think he's going to. No, I'm not stretching. He this is it here. <laughs> Reach your goal. Oh Reach my god! Goal. There you go. That's yeah. awesome. So I, when I took my year off from cyber, I, I wrote this book with this uh, this young lady here. My wife took all the photos. Um, this is the black and white. That's this cool. Is the black and white version here. But this was my first foray into self publishing. Um, self publishing. What? what yeah. Is the, yeah. Do you do you find that do you enjoy that better versus working with a publisher? Is it like, what's what's the what's the trade off for doing it yourself besides the, you get to do it yourself? Yeah, the trade-off is you have to be good at all the areas that a publisher might help you with. Now, for someone like me, um, who I was a history and a political, political science double major, I've been writing my whole life. Um, writing is my thing. And I'm pretty decent at catching things and all of that. So um, the writing, the editing, the organizational, I'm really good with all that. Um, I actually hired someone to do the layout for this book because... It's actually fairly complicated with pictures and text and all that. Now, in the several years since this book came out, I know the process. I can do it myself. So when I wrote the last three books, you know, so the Best of Dow Security blog, you know, this series here, these, I've published them all through Kindle, um, both in print and uh, um, print and Kindle. And the Kindle versions, they're properly formatted. 
The, I, I didn't take the easy way out and just provide them with a PDF. And then when you open up your Kindle, it's just a PDF page. <laughs> Good no, luck, no, everybody. No. I did the refillable HTML. Yes. So these, these, these read properly on your Kindle. And of oh, course, I had to cool. figure that out to do this. Um, but as it is now, you know, these are, these are really books. The, the, the self-publishing industry has come a long way since I first started. So if you, if you are the type of person who are organized and you can write, um, I would say try self-publishing. But if you need help, you need to get that help. Because you have the, How do you find that help, though? It depends who you publish with. So when Craig I published Blitz. this book, um, I published it with Blurb. They're one of the major self-publishing groups that are out there. They have a whole um, environment or ecosystem. So you can go to their website and say, I need someone who does layout. I need someone who could do a cover. I need someone who can copy edit, proofread, whatever it is. It's like Fiverr for like book publishing, like Fiverr does like graphic design and all the other stuff, right? So Exactly, you know. yeah. So I, we hired, you know, I hired a, a lady who was local to do the layout for the book. Cause I said, I don't want to spend the time to learn how to use an illustrator or whatever it was. But now as I understand how these books actually come together, particularly for Kindle, you can literally lay it out in Google Docs. Like this whole book, I did everything in Google Docs. Everything. That's and, a thick book too. Oh, this Holy is cow. this is the thinnest of the three. I mean, oh my lord. Yeah, the um, the three volumes alone were like almost thirteen hundred pages. I originally it was going to be one book, and then I said, ah, I should probably break them up. And I'm glad I did because each one is on the order of 70, 80, 90, almost a hundred thousand words. So it's it's a lot. How there. do you? So how do you? Yeah. Man, how do you like know where you cut off and where you start and like what like makes a good like volume? You know what I mean? Like what is, what is like the? I guess I need to look into what like the, that volumes are because I know well, your your original ones, right? You, but, you look at the title of one; it's milestones, philosophy, and strategy, risk, and advice. So, so you were able to like find a a, a significant amount of blog posts or or, or you know yeah. anecdotes yes. that you can fill up that sort of thing, and you're like, oh well, I have this whole bunch of stuff on network security. And I can just put that in the next book, right? That's so, right. Kind of, kind of like that. You just have to organize by uh, logical grouping. Yeah. So what I did was, I think in the fall of 2019, I I looked at my blog and I said, "Can I come up with 12 categories of blog of blog entries, and then have one, and then have groups of four categories be the major parts of a book? Because I like to do things in threes. So part one, part two, part three. Each one of the parts would have, would have four chapters with that material. Um, and then I went through every blog post that I had published, the over 3,000 posts in the last, since 2003, however many, 18 years, I guess. Wow. And I labeled, I picked out basically of the 3,000, I picked out um, about 360 posts that I thought would be worth sharing. <laughs> you know, these were, a lot of my posts were very technical. So like very specific things, how to get this done in FreeBSD or whatever, that has no value anymore because it's 15 years later. So I took the post that had more enduring content. And then I, then I took the, I saw how much I had with each one and I sort of arranged them so that each one was roughly about, about the same amount of material. And that's when I realized this is a lot of stuff. This is way more than one book. So I made it into three books. And then as I went along, I was going to have a set of appendices in volume three that were for things that I hadn't published yet anywhere, basically. And then I realized Oh, that's a whole nother book. That's like another 90,000 words. <laughs> so that's what volume four is going to be. It'll be things like the PhD I started, but didn't finish for, for war studies, um, stuff like that. That's what's going to appear in, in volume four that I hope to finish in the next month. And you're going to need a five and a six, right? No, I'm you done. Even it out. No, you're done. That's <laughs> it. That's good. You're going to call it. You can the, tap out on that. My next, my next grand goal will be a PhD in history. 
And so uh, I have a huge history series for martial arts history, basically, um, that I hope to start uh, with the PhD. That'll be the first volume. And then I've got plans for potentially five or six volumes. So this is going to be the thing that I'll be doing into my 50s and 60s. And you really uh, like writing. I, that's what I gathered out of this is like, you really enjoy like, is it more like you like writing or like, like conveying those thoughts, right? Because like a blog post is like, here's like an example, like almost like a lecture, like here's like, do something and like, here's how you can do it better. And here's how I did it. And I found success doing it. Like, is that what, what aspect do you, do you just like, yeah, I don't know. Cause like, I I've tried to write it. Like my wife and I try to write a, like you know, a threat intelligence book, right. With a very well-known publisher. And I talked yeah. about this on the last podcast because Philip, who we had re- on last one also wrote a book recently. And I'm like, we had an epic fail with it. Like it was, just, it was awful working with this publisher. Mm. I'm not going to put, you know, I'm not going to call them out because, but it was just not a good experience and we just dropped it. Right. You know, cause it was a lot like we need a little handholding and we just didn't get it. Right. Cause he's sure. like, we don't know how to write a book. We know how to teach a, a class, but like, yeah. how do you convey that back into a chapter? Right. You know, or whatever it might be. So most everything I've ever written has been because I want to know what I think about it. In other words, I want to record, this is how I'm thinking about this topic. Okay. And it's a way for me to organize my thoughts, honestly. That's, and if other people find it useful, that's great. But most of the, I mean, sometimes it is advocacy, like, hey, this is a problem I see, and I think here's some ideas. So there's some advocacy. But um, most of the time, what I'm trying to do is figure out, what does this mean? So like, for example, my, my martial history team project. I wanted to record material like, hey, I keep hearing that Japanese jujitsu has its roots in Chinese arts. Is that real? Like, I want to know what this is. And so I do some research and I find out, well, no, that's it's popularly thought that, but there's no evidence for it. And here's where the myth comes from. And then I write a blog post about it. So now I have it straight in my head. This is what this means. And if in the future, I forget what that is, or I see the the question come up, I'll say, oh, I wrote a blog post about that. And boom, I'll go back and refresh my memory, point people to it. I did something similar with with Teddy Roosevelt. Everybody thinks Teddy Roosevelt was this amazing judoka who was like this seventh degree black belt and he was fighting all these. He he took like like a handful of lessons in 1902 and 1904. I went through all the evidence, everything that was out there, the original accounts, everything, put it into a blog post. So now when anyone says, Teddy Roosevelt had his black belt. I can say, mm, no, not really. Here's what he did. He never got any rank whatsoever. However, he was very enthusiastic about it. Huh. I, I mean, that's a good approach. Cause I, I mean, I've always wondered why people write blog posts, right? Is it more of like, I want to convey my knowledge or I want to convey, like, I want to make sure that I document it. Well, I, I know you're talking about a lot of, Everybody left. Everybody's leaving. Hold on here. Every it, nobody can see this, but Richard is standing on on a chair. Kyle left the room. I got there a book. I pull nothing. Yet. Everybody left. I, I don't know I'm if you. Seen I this. never left. I'm still here. Have you? This is the book I picked up recently for my buddy. Have you seen this, Marshall? Oh book? yes. So the funny the backstory about that Open book. Open and closed guard, right? Yeah, it's called, called yeah Opening Closed Guard by Robert Drysdale. Yeah. Uh, Robert is, is creating a documentary about the history of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He's a, he's a fellow historian. Actually, he's a, he's, he's a world champion Jiu-Jitsu competitor. He's like one of the right. greatest Americans ever. Um, he, he's been working on this documentary for years, and it's held up. And I had a phone call with him. I wanted to talk to him because I said, you should write a book. I mean, the, you know so much about this material. Put down what you know because I'd like to be able to cite it. It's a pain in the butt to cite a documentary. I'd rather say on page 12, 
Robert wrote this. And he's like, ah, I don't know if I should write a book. I don't think it'd be that popular, whatever. Who would want to read it? And I said, write it, write it, write it. Well, guess what? A few months later, he wrote the book. <laughs> now, I don't think it was, I think you probably heard that from a lot of people. Um, and the book isn't exactly, I mean, it's basically, it's sort of a, a travel history of his process of, of working on the documentary. So it really wouldn't stand up, I think, in terms of like citations, but it's a great way to get people exposed to the ideas that this, the great, the, um, the history you hear of jujitsu from various people is not, I mean, it's not even really one slice of it. It's kind of like a manufactured. So you're saying that that book is actually like quality content. Like if I don't know anything about jujitsu, BJJ, I should, I should read open closed guard. No, I would not. Yeah, it's inside baseball. Honestly, I think. Oh, it's... I like it. That's inside baseball is a good good show. <laughs> so, open close guard is not is not real story. So, so Kyle, why do why do you have that book? What's what's the significance that you have? Well, my buddy uh, recommended, it, and like I've heard of Robert Drysdale as well, and it was just like he's like I've read this book, and and it seems really interesting, and I'm like oh I'll you know pick it up too because like. I know like as a jujitsu practitioner, like you understand where it sort of started, but you don't like, there's not really like a history book and there's lots of different resources as Richard was saying, like there's lots of different resources out there. And it's just like, I wanted something to at least the core to start with and like, yeah, not make up the stuff in my head as I go along. That's right. There, the, the book, the definitive history has not been written. I mean, the book that is the source of a lot of the material or the books that are the source of a lot of the material that appears in, in Robert's book is something I would never recommend to anyone, unless you're like a hardcore historian looking for primary sources. Um, it's by this uh, Brazilian guy, and he basically just outlines, and on this day, in this city, this happened, just one after the other for year after year after year. There's no narrative. No one has written a narrative history of it. And I, I know some historians who I, I poke and I say, hey, I loved your book on the history of the samurai. It's really good. Or the, like what ninja really were, your book was really good take a look at the Gracie's you, or the guy who wrote, actually, if you want like probably the best martial arts book to read for biography, read um, Matthew Polly's book, Bruce Lee, a life. It will blow your mind. It's where you will learn about Bruce Lee, the bully, where you will learn about all, <laughs> actually how he died. I mean, all these sorts of things. I didn't know um, he was a bully. Yeah. He told me he was a bully. <laughs> I didn't watch a lot of martial arts movies. We watched uh, a lot of Indiana Jones back to the future growing up in my house. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> That's good was... stuff too. There was there was not a lot of you know blood sport any any sort of that happening in uh in my household, but I feel like I missed out because Bruce Lee seems pretty badass. I don't know much about him, but he looks like yeah. he's a pretty tough kid. Yeah, he yeah he was definitely tough. Um, he was an actor first. He was a child actor. He acted all the way through his life basically from when he was very very young because his father was an actor, and um, he learned martial arts so he could fight better and beat people up better. Uh, later on, he he brought he came to the United States because he had to leave the country essentially. Otherwise, he was afraid he was going to end up in jail, or his parents were afraid of that. So he came to the United States, came to Seattle, uh, enrolled at the uh, University of Washington there, um, studied philosophy, and uh, the whole time was trying to figure out ways to get in front of the camera. Um, he did try opening some schools. He initially thought he would become like a McDonald's, like a franchise, his schools across the country. He realized he couldn't ensure quality control doing that. And so he decided he would instead take his message out through TV and movies, hopefully. Um, something else that many people think, many people think he invented the Kung Fu TV series with David Carradine. That is not true. He did not invent that TV series. Um, he was 
considered for the role of Kwai Chang Kane. However, because essentially he was half Chinese, he had a heavy accent and Hollywood was racist back then. They didn't, they interviewed him. And then afterwards they said, this guy will never have the role. And they oh. gave it to, to David Carradine. Um, yeah. Didn't so, he also like go to like, he went back to China or something to act because he had better success over there too early yeah. on or something like that. He actually got an offer to do a movie in the United States or a TV series. I can't quite remember, but he's like, he was already saying, I'm going back to, going back to Hong Kong. And that's when he made the big boss and uh, fist of fury and all these iconic movies. And then eventually he got the attention of Hollywood and they did, you know, the first co-production between Hong Kong and LA, uh, which was enter the dragon. And unfortunately it premiered after he died um, because he, he passed away in 1972, I believe he passed away. Yeah. Some stuff I don't know. I don't. I don't know much about Bruce Lee. I wish I did. Maybe I should read something. Read. Read Bruce Lee alive. It's how, really how about great this. Book. I. I don't read. Uh, is there anything I can watch? <laughs> there are no good documentaries. Even the one that what? came out most. No, they're all hey geography. They're all fake. Not fake, but they're just like Bruce Lee was so amazing. Yeah, he's. But the thing is, he was a flawed person, just like every yeah, person yeah, sure. is flawed. Um, even the even the most recent one that came out, the Thirty for Thirty on ESPN. Yeah, um, they glossed over everything. And Matthew Polly was kind of involved with it. And afterwards, he's like, oh, my God, I can't believe they produced that with my name associated with it. Oh. So, yeah, there's no good. The, the family is so tightly controls his image. People don't want to hear that he was like he was with so many women when he was in Hollywood. I mean, it was a different time, right? It was like the swinging 60s or whatever. People don't want to hear that. They want to hear that Bruce Lee was like this perfect father and, you know, he was doing things like disciplined, right? He was just like, yeah, yeah. Uh, he was blowing money on, on Porsche, not maybe not a Porsche. I can't remember what he bought. He was, he was blowing his money on cars to try to keep up with Steve McQueen when he couldn't even pay his mortgage. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of guy Bruce Lee was. <laughs> it's <laughs> funny when you hear these things. Cause these are people that held in such like that uh, iconic in like certain areas, right? Like Bruce Lee is still like, you, you see, you know, there's even like jujitsu, some stuff I see now that gets produced, like Bruce Lee stuff on it and stuff like yeah. that, right? Or just like that theme of that, you know, that era, right? Anybody who's seen a Bruce Lee movie goes through the Bruce Lee adulation phase where they're like, oh my God, this, this guy is so amazing. I wish I could be him. Uh, and then if they sort of get beyond that, they realize he's a human being, just like all of us. I mean, he said he was a human being, right? I mean, but we didn't yeah. listen to him. We think he's some kind of God or whatever. I actually have a side project. Um, underneath Marshall history team that I call sourcing Bruce Lee. So if you do a Google search on sourcing Bruce Lee, or you go to sourcingbrucelee.blogspot.com, um, you'll see all of my posts where I tell you whether or not all of those memes you see with so-called Bruce Lee quotes, whether they're real or not. And then, you know, you might imagine most of them. I actually, I had one recently too. I'll find it. Get I'll open that blog post. This is that crazy. I, I didn't yeah. know there were Bruce Lee memes. Oh yeah. There's one that, oh man, I wish I, I had it. Cause it was so like tough and like, like I, it was right when I started back doing jujitsu again. I'm like, this is perfect. You know what I mean? Yeah. I yeah. need to look it up to see if it's actually real. <laughs> Do you ever check how many hits you get on this sort of stuff? Like this more sort of material where people are like, oh yeah, I wondered if he ever actually did say that like mighty is he who conquers the world. And you're like, oh yeah, well, it turns out 300,000 people actually wanted to know. <laughs> it's tough to say. I don't, <laughs> uh, the, the, the limited statistics, like, here's the good thing about blogger or blogspot. It's been around forever and it's still going to be there. All the yeah. self-hosted stuff, it disappears. The bad well, news is the analytics aren't that great. So I can tell you like Dow Security Blog has, 
I don't know, 16 million hits since they started giving me stats in like 2010 or whatever. So from that perspective, that security blog gets way more hits than anything I've written in the martial arts. Uh, but who knows? Maybe this podcast will change things. We'll see. My, I can tell you my GeoCities page would never move the needle <laughs> like Tal Security would. So There's a recent sunglass website that looks like an old school like uh, GeoCities page, but it's like updated, but they, they made it look like it's like from 1998. It's oh, iconic. It's amazing. I love so it. So good. Does it have the little dude saying under construction and he's digging? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just everything's like seems flashy and everything's like very blocky and like it's yeah, just like, a MIDI. You get a little MIDI music in the background while you're like, it's, I mean, I'll, I'll throw them out there. It's, behind it's, it. it's Pit Viper is like, and they have like, uh, where this, I mean, the sunglasses are straight from like the 80s, like, and I just, I don't know, I love them. My buddy had them. Like, they're just like this straight, like, yeah. <laughs> you do what you want. You oh, you my like, God. You're going to you're gonna be wearing those out in Vegas one of these days. I know. It. I can <laughs> I see you walking you, the street. I can't wait to get back out there just because back to life. I enjoy Vegas. Hey, Richard, I wanted to ask you, as I think our only uh, potential, uh, I would call you a TV star at this point. Like, what, what, what is it like when you get a phone call from like CNBC and they're like, hey, come on our show and talk about stuff? Like talk you're about like, the recent ransomware uh, hack on like blah blah blah. Like, you're like yeah. uh, okay, I can do that. Wait, what? What's that like? Okay, is it weird. So that it is weird. That was a, a fairly narrow period of time that I had to do that between basically 2012 and 2015 when and I was with Mandy and Fire. Mandy, right? right. Yeah, um, and it's because we were breaking a lot of that stuff, so we could, you know, I, I never liked talking about things that we weren't working on. Like I refuse to do that now for my current employer. Uh, if you're listening. You don't want to go on PBS? That's why I don't do it. But yeah, but the, the, back in the day when we were actually working that stuff, yeah. So what, what happened is you get the call. They'd say you need to be in the DC studio. Um, I take the train in. It's a huge production, right? For me to come out from where I used to live to go in there. Anyway, so you get there. And if you're lucky, it's an in-person thing where you're sitting down with another person and you can actually interact with them. If it's not, if it's like a, a remote thing with like Liz Clayman from Fox or... Um, whatever you're staring you're in a small studio and you're staring at a dot on the wall that's the camera and you have your your mic'd up and you're talking to a person you're hearing a voice and you're just staring at the dot that's what it's like you're staring I, my favorite at the dot yeah my favorite one though was when i, I was in the situation room with wolf blitzer my favorite Ooh. he is the best i, I remember watching up. him during the gulf war um oh yeah i remember that too yeah so <laughs> I was in the situation room with him. And before we went, we went live, it was just like Anchorman. He, he asked me, how do you pronounce your name? And I said, Baitlick. And he said, Baitlick, Baitlick, Baitlick. Just like that. It was so funny. <laughs> and then we went live and he was just the consummate pro. That's my favorite appearance to date was, um, was, was, was sitting with him. Do you, do, so you cool. any, do you have any tips like in those situations where like you're kind of aware of a situation going on, but then you got like pulled into, you know, let's assume that like you, this was that time period and like, you know, this exchange hack happened and you, you're aware of everything. You kind of have situational awareness, but like you weren't hands-on on any of the things maybe at the time. How do you, what, do you have any tips and techniques to like handle those situations? And I'm, maybe I'm speaking for myself, even when someone's like, Hey, I need you to talk about this thing. And you don't have like that in-depth, like that you wish you that core knowledge that you wish you had, like, how do you, I guess, fake it you till need, you make it almost you need a team man you need the talking points provided to you asap and then you just <laughs> read them on the train all the way to dc <laughs> well okay so clearly when i worked at mandiant i was not doing the intel so i was relying on what my intel team was telling me 
I did do a lot of research on my own into how the Chinese worked um, sort of from the operational level up. So the team, the team did operational and strategic as well, but they did a lot of tactical and tools. So they would brief me or give me details on that, that level. And then I would be like, I would personally be more interested in the operational through the strategic and policy levels. And then I would try to combine it together. Um, my, my overall recommendation is if you're not comfortable with answering the question for whatever reason, um, you just got to say no, because if you don't do that and you just play it off like, oh yeah, I can talk about whatever, eventually they'll find you out and it may be a catastrophe, it may not be, but these reporters are pretty smart. Contrary to what you hear a lot of people, like a lot of reporters get a lot of grief for bad reasons, just like executives. Executives made it for a reason, right? They're not stupid. Same thing with politicians. When I've testified in front of the Congress, you know, the, the House or the Senate, these are sharp people and they will eat you alive if they decide to. So as far as answering questions goes, don't speculate, don't, um, don't get trapped. Like you need to develop a sense of what's happening during the interview. And if you can get media training, do it. We, we got media training at, at, at Mandiant. And one of the things they taught was, what do you want out of, that, out of this interview, right? You're not getting paid. I never got paid a dime for any of these things. You know, you're there. Uh, the best that can possibly come from it is a little bit of a halo effect around your company. So if there's something you want the world to know about your company, figure out a way to work that into the answer to a question. And then, you know, everybody's happy. Huh. Where was your favorite uh, interview? Was uh, Wolf Blitzer was was CNN like the the tops? I, I would say yeah, that probably was. Although I did like I did like um, being on Fox Business with Liz Clayman because when I was in Boston growing up, uh, she was like a cub reporter on the local channels. So I remember oh, thinking, that's, that's oh yeah, cool. I remember seeing her. And then also I remember I really liked being on CNBC. I can't remember the reporter's name, but she was cool that I spoke with. Oh, and then I spoke also on CNBC with a different reporter, and he kept trying to make all these jokes that I just wasn't catching, like they were <laughs> pop popular culture references. So if you watch the interview, I've got a whole playlist of these interviews on YouTube. You watch it, he yeah. keeps dropping these things, and I'm not catching it. So I'm like the ultimate straight man to his, his funny man routine. <laughs> that one was pretty good. Um, there was a guy named Vago Maradian who used to do um, Defense News Weekly or something. It was like kind of a local D.C type show that all the, the policy Pentagon type people watched. He was the first guy I think that ever hosted me. And so I really liked his, I was on his show twice. His, his stuff was good too. That's so cool. I'm looking, I'm looking through your playlist right now. I see PBS. I see Soledad O'Brien on CNN. Yeah. She Bloomberg. Was cool. PBS. What about the PBS? Really? Yeah. The PBS I did. It's um, a long form. You a little 10 minute spot there. Yeah. That was, I think because of, of Chinese hacking. When the APT one report came out, yeah. Uh, Kevin and I, and I think Grady Summers were the three of us that they said everything that's come, that's that people want to see, get the three the three of them out there. So it was like just chaos. And I remember one of the interviews. I can't remember exactly which one. My mom called me that night and she said, "You look terrible on TV. What's the matter?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, I do. I'm I'm exhausted. I've been doing these all day. And uh, you know, if they don't if they don't put the makeup on, like to make my bald head not shine and my, my eyes look." Know, black underneath and whatever yeah you look like death warmed over on tv I'm tired you know? right i'm tired yeah when you talk about the same thing for the 17th time i'm sure well it's i mean that, the know, apt1 report was iconic i mean i remember is. the day it, it came still out. is iconic and, right i mean it is like 2013 i remember working at a consulting firm which i think someone that you worked with at ge later on uh ken bradley oh i love ken 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I worked there for a little bit of time and I remember the day it came out and then like my wife did like when she was an intern at SCI did like this whole pivotal thing on it. Like, you know, network analysis and like found different stuff that the report highlighted. It was just like that report still, I still reference that in the lectures I give to students on network analysis and pivoting and what you can do and things like that and what, how you can find all this stuff. And that was like, I mean, that was I mean, it started it all, right? It started, you know, that's why we have, you know, Fancy Bear now and, and, and you know, Dragonfly this. and Well, so I covered, this in, I covered this in one of my Best of Dow Security blog um, volumes. I can't remember exactly which one. It didn't actually start it. There are a few earlier ones, like the Sys Lab had some material. Um, Dimitri had material on, uh, I can't remember what the name of it, um, Shadow, whatever. But anyway, um, the thing that was different, and we didn't, we didn't think it, we didn't know it was going to get, get huge. We had a feeling it would make an impact in the security world. But the reason it broke out, were, there were two reasons. One, it was on the front page of the New York Times, above the fold, right there as I walked to the office, I saw it on, a, on the ground. I said, wow, okay, this is big. And then the second reason was it linked it to a building. Yeah. In other words, you could yeah. send a reporter there, and reporters who were in China went to the building. And they tried to take pictures and the, and the, the PLA army, you know, the PLA was chasing them away. And then reporters were running, trying to take photos and then jumping into cabs and they were being chased by the soldiers. So clearly this was an important building and something was happening. That's, that's what made the difference is when it was linked to a physical location. That was that was the innovation that caught uh, people. I remember uh, there's I remember the screen I, I remember the screenshots like the like the even the, the you know Google Earth like type images and I uh -huh. I can visually see the document to this day and it's almost boy, it's have going you seen on have you nine, seen the award winning YouTube video about the uh, captured RDP sessions? No, but I will after this. <laughs> <laughs> look, look up the APT one report video and the YouTube comments are just, I mean, YouTube is almost the cesspool of the internet. It's not quite, sure. it's, it's pretty close. It's, so the it's, comments <laughs> in, you read are just ridiculous. People don't understand anything about anything in those comments. Um, they thought we must've been hacking the Chinese or whatever. It, we were basically just capturing the RDP sessions and then we rebuilt them. And that's what everything you see is intruder activity on victim systems by virtue of us monitoring at hot points and capturing the RDP sessions. That's yeah. how all of that happened. What should we look at? RDP exposed or, or what, what am I looking for? State uh, of the hack one year after APT1? No, it uh, came out right around that February 2013 timeframe. I can't I, quite remember the name of it. I remember working for the, uh, the client that I was working for and that, that popped out and it was just, it was just a mess. Everyone was just <laughs> like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> APT1 was the secret everybody knew, right? Everyone knew right. who these jokers were. And what happened was we, we had, um, I remember Travis Reese and Kevin Mandia met and they said, we are tired of the Chinese constantly denying that they hack anybody. What could we do to show without a doubt they hack a ton of things? And the idea was let's publish APT1. Like we knew about all these horrible groups that were way better than APT1, you know, APT17, APT10, APT3, over, you know, APT8, whatever. But we said, if we're going to burn a group, let's burn APT1. Because these jokers, you know, they've been doing the same darn things for years and years and years. Let's go ahead and, and that's what we did. So good. It was so good. It was so good. Thank you. It was iconic. I mean, it was like the. I mean, it was like the culminate. I remember it. Like I said, I remember sitting in that in consulting office in D.C. and Dupont Circle, and that report came out, and we're all like, "Oh my god, this is." 
<laughs> How long did it take you to generate enough information to make that report? What, what could you estimate? Oh, that was years, right? You that were, was years in the making. Years of work, April. and you're just like, you know, so Joker, April, Joker drew a money pile, right? Just light, <laughs> well, lighting on fire. Basically, what happened was that, you know, the, there were dossiers that the Intel team created for every group that we were tracking. And APT1 was one of the first ones, hence it was APT1. Um, and so then, then it became, all right, well, how do we turn a dossier into something that would make sense to a more general reader? And that's how that final report came out. And then, it, then uh, Mandiant had been doing incident response for the New York Times six months prior. And we said, hey, we're working on this report. And they said, oh, well, how about if we lead with that? And that's, oh. you know, their story came out. Uh, you know, their story came out about them being hacked, I think, in January of 2013. And then they broke the APT1 report in February. So good. So iconic. I love it. <laughs> like I said, I still reference it. Like, you need to go back and read. The, I tell all my students, you need to go back and read this report. And like, I, I, yeah, I guess, you know, in, in defense, like, I don't, I should have said it was the first one. But like, you know, for our industry, it feels like the first one, even though there's other things out there. So. Yeah. Well, cyber threat intel as a named thing with actually that name, basically it was developed in the 2010s. Like it came about in that time frame. And I, I did some research and that again appears in Best of Dot Security blog. But I can't remember which which volume it's in there. But I went back and looked like when were we first actually talking about that as a thing? And I want to say it was um Kloppert was the first guy who was writing anything about it really in a way you would you would recognize as um, yeah, Mike Cloppert writing for SANS, I want to say in 2009, his was the first stuff where you're like, yeah, that looks like modern CTI. And he didn't call it CTI, but it was, I think it might've been called threat intelligence. I actually, the whole idea of threat intelligence is a military intelligence officer still bugs me. I mean, it's intelligence. What do you think it's about? It's about <laughs> a threat, right? I mean, that's, it's, that's it's all it's threat. For. Yeah. So, I mean, but that's just, you know, my old stuff bleeding through, but, um, yeah, it's a young discipline, right? It's just a thing. And people just now are, I mean, not, now, not just now, but a lot of people now are building teams. There's a lot of demand for people who know how to build CTI teams. Which is weird because it's been around for a long time. Like you said, you could break it down just as intelligent. Like we've always had these teams. Like when I was at NSA, we had these teams. Like, you know, name, public names were a name, but like internally we had yeah. names. Oh, yeah groups that existed and just as you know back you know you were there longer than i was right and this is and, and david was there too and things so you just know that these things exist so like when things came public you're like oh that's interesting that you know you know public entities are now tracking them similarly and i'm guessing it's because everybody left you know the ic community and did the same thing and you know the uh, you know vendor community which obviously you can look back and probably like yeah because yeah all the executives were all former I see of some sort. Yeah. There. Well, two quick thoughts on that. One, um, this whole idea of giving things a name, like someone asked me about detection engineering the other day no. oh, and I wow. thought about it and I said, you know, David Bianco, I remember very clearly developing the first rule sets that we had deployed at our GE sensors. That was pure straight up detection engineering, except we didn't call it that. It was just a duty he had as an incident handler. So people have been doing this sort of stuff for years. It's just that now it's a very specific discipline. And what, it's is, got what did name. you call it back then? It was just a duty David had. It was like, David, we need you to create some rules around this. <laughs> do, do your job. Yeah. We should call it David detection engineering then. Yeah. Right? Like, 
<laughs> You're I right. Because like we, you know, where I work now, we just hired a detection engineer to do detection engineering type stuff. But then as like a threat, I mean, you know, in, in the threat analyst world, like I make detections too, right? Like, and it's just like, now, yeah, but there's like an explicit discipline where that's all that, you know, it's, yeah, it's interesting to see. Yeah. Even as young as I am, in, you know, our, our mid careers, right. To see how the things have evolved, even in the, in the 2010s, like it, it did really take foot. And it's like kind of funny to look back in time. And even, you know, when Dave and I were in school in the, you know, 2000s, it was like, man, you know, just, just the things that evolved since then and like how students still like you know some students today don't even know linux right and like you're like well i reinstalled linux on my laptop and had to read forums for hours to figure out how to get the wi-fi card to work right yeah like, you know what i mean like yeah that's right i get the driver to work I, I just remember the second thread i said i had two but i didn't say the second one the second oh, one was sorry. it was no no it's, it's totally what you were talking about with um people from the IC or DOD going into private sector. I did a talk several years ago for SANS, the, their CTI summit, on what I call the revolution in private sector intelligence. And occasionally when I used to tweet, I would tweet with the hashtag RevPrivSec. And it, it's a presentation on YouTube if anybody wants to watch it. It's actually one of my favorites. It basically showed how when I first became an Intel officer, what I had to do to do my job and what are the factors that now enable people to do almost that same job without a clearance using open sources. And one of the factors is that you do have people who came from that cleared world. Uh, and some, in some cases, there are still people in that cleared world and they don't come out and release classified material, at least they shouldn't, but they can say things like, you know, oh, you're looking at that Akula class submarine in this location at this, yeah, that really is that. Or I think if you looked at this, you would notice this other thing. So it's a way for, and it's done anonymously. And so there's these, all these factors that come into play that make, CTI be a real thing, right? We've got enough people who can do it on the outside. There's jobs for them. There's good quality sources. There's projects like Bellingcat. It's uh, that's what's made CTI um, exist. Bellingcat does some cool stuff too. They, yeah, uh, I saw I saw a presentation in January WanCon. It was an individual that I forget his name. I'll tag him in the show notes. But he put and he had a former Bellingcat analyst that now works for new york times i think give a presentation about tracking the whole uh one of the things he's explicitly talked about like the the airplane that was shot down uh 17 yeah yeah and it was like just to, how they're able to pivot on the stuff that like as a like true tech like the, the, what they're using that like we could use as a truly like you know cyber focus and what they're not even thinking about that and what they can find and correlate it was like mm -hmm. i was mind blown that was like the coolest presentation i've seen in a while like i was like wow that's just like taking a video from this person post on instagram from twitter to this and that to reconstruct and google map image and this from two days before and three days after it's like what and then the, they build a story that like you're like, oh my God, that's exactly what happened. And yeah. like, there's no way to deny it because they have evidence of it, right? You're like- <laughs> It is encouraging that we do have the evidence and the expertise to be able to assemble that story. And yet we still have to deal with so many conspiracy theories, craziness, the <laughs> stuff that get propagates because it's what people, or at least what some people want to believe. Like they really want that to be true. And so it ends up being that <laughs> or for them at least it is until so, so to kind of pivot yeah. off of that real fast and then go back to the to the apt1 report were you at all skeptical of naming 
people in the identity section when you have ugly gorilla fingerprinted and you have dota and you're like uh well these we could be ruining some people's lives in this country you know there's a there's millions and billions of people in the world and you're able to identify specific human beings going by not their names on the internet right yeah did did you at all feel a little bit uncomfortable oh yeah yeah doing that sort of thing yeah, it was a decision above my pay grade, right? I was just a contributor. And on, honestly, I edited. I didn't even, I wasn't contributing material. It was okay. the Intel team who did that. But the decision about the, the nature of what was in there was definitely a, you know, a Kevin and Travis type decision. And yes, the concern was, if we name who these people are, are we setting a precedent such that if they ever got the capability on their end, they would name our operators. And that day is coming. Um, oh yeah, there's there's no doubt about it. I mean, there's yeah. no yeah. I mean, we I see think... it in the diplomatic realm. You know, when uh, uh, various I, I saw the other day in BBC News, the only news worth watching on TV, as far as I'm concerned, they named um, certain uh, members of parliament and uh, uh, educators and some academics who had pointed out the horrible things that are going on in Xinjiang to the Uyghurs, and so the Chinese sanctioned them, like. You know, well, I wasn't planning to go back to China anyway, but that's right. You know, that's the type of thing you have to worry about now. Yeah, this is a slippery slope, and also because it was a private company that did it, it wasn't you know the United States government that was like, oh, hey, we know you guys are doing bad things, please stop doing it. Right. right. Yeah, and that that's what people forget is that maybe some people remember. I don't know. Um, the government didn't want to say anything about this. I mean, no. Remember the time when when Google came out and said, you know, we got hacked by China. That, they didn't even call it the APT. I, I said, this is what the APT is. Right? That was, <laughs> and the, the reason that was so brave, I mean, it's brave for so many levels, but they, may, they broke the precedent that if you talked about China in an intrusion, you were somehow breaking a security clearance. Like Those of us who were cleared back then were very afraid that if you talked about China in intrusion sets, you were somehow breaking, you were releasing secret at least. Well, also, and then you're getting targeted, right? You're, you're worried about getting targeted in some sense. Well, in, and now in the open you can walk community, right? Now you can walk to the spy museum and see all the names, you know, on the wall, right? Like, yeah. Well, we were never really concerned about being targeted by the Chinese. The Russians are a different story. You know, the Russians will operate domestically. The Chinese don't quite do that sort of activity. So, and we've seen it not necessarily so much in the United States, but they murder people in the UK or try to at least. That's terrifying, and I don't know what else to say about that. <laughs> what are you talking respect. about? They, what? They well, do you what? remember the, the, the poisonings that uh, the oh, okay. they had okay. in the UK? And I mean, Navalny, he got, he got poisoned in, uh, in Russia. And, oh, it's, it's, yeah. it's brutal over there, man. Yeah. yeah. I'm, not, I'm not traveling. Even when COVID disappears, I'm not yeah. going to stay right here. Just for the record, I'm not a fan of Mr. Putin's politics, but I do have his judo book behind me. There you go. Um, he, he, he does both judo and plays ice hockey, which is quite a feat given I think he picked up hockey in his 50s. He, uh, so. he also scores like 15 or 16 goals a game. <laughs> does, the cover, say, does, he... does the cover of that book have him like bare-chested riding a horse of some sort? Perhaps no, a he's just sitting in his, his judo gi. He's just, it's a chill just book. It's actually a pretty sitting. decent book. Not yeah. not to put a bullseye on us, but does, does he really know judo or is he like Teddy Roosevelt? No, he's a real judoka. Okay. He is a legit judo black belt. Now, at his age, he's not going to be smashing people sure. or whatever, Absolutely. but he is a real judoka. Um, funny thing about his rank, 
uh, he he actually I think is still president of some international like he's like a, got an honorary position I think is president of the International Judo Foundation because he's one of the highest ranked judoka who's a politician in the world um, and a few years ago a one of the smaller judo federations in the United States decided to award Teddy Roosevelt posthumously I want to say either sixth or seventh don in judo to make him technically outrank Putin at that time. <laughs> <laughs> so by some virtue, Teddy Roosevelt does have higher, you know, does have a, a significant judo rank. Of course, it's completely honorary. Since that time, though, Putin has been awarded higher rank. So Putin does outrank Roosevelt at this point. And Putin has real skills. Let's say, seen, let's I'm, say, I've, yeah, I'm sorry, I've seen him ahead. do like uh, a thing. I mean, it, with the Japanese, like it looks like he's, at, I've seen like the video, the, the almost like the YouTube video or like Instagram video of him, like doing hip tosses and stuff. And it's like, you, you look at it, you're like, yeah, he definitely looks like he knows technique, but does he like really know technique or was he like coach before that? So I'm glad to know that he actually truly knows some technique. Is that the yeah. same video where he's fighting Steven Seagal? No, uh, Steven Seagal might be there, the one I'm thinking of, but like he didn't throw Steven Seagal. That was, was quite say, a, a also, feat, actually, to throw Seagal in his current state. There's also a bear, right? <laughs> Steven Seagal's a big guy. He's gotten bigger. <laughs> yes, yeah. he is. <laughs> <laughs> now, the thing about Seagal is he has real skills too. Back in the 90s when he was making his movies, his Aikido was legit. And I've seen I've seen some of the tests that he would put his students through in California from around that time as well. And he, it was not the type of Aikido you see, like where people are floating around, like being cooperative. It was kind of hardcore, but I wouldn't mess with that guy. Yeah. No. Under He's siege dark anyway. territory. He looks pretty badass in that movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was a jerk. He was a jerk on many levels. He really hurt you, people doing. Yeah. Don't say. Yeah. Unlike, however, um, one of my favorite people to be in a, a movie, um, uh, Patrick Swayze from Roadhouse, uh, just a un, unheralded movie as far as the martial arts community goes. That guy, yeah, he, I mean, he was a dancer, but he could really pull out those moves. It's, I, I, as someone who's done Muay Thai, it's not easy to kick someone's head and be fluid about it as he did in Roadhouse. And you yeah. Know what I mean? Well, I, the dude, I mean, I can't even get a kick now because my hips are so tight at times. Yeah. <laughs> well, the dude he he was constantly at odds with throughout the movie, the uh, the guy who was in prison or whatever. Yeah. Um, I saw an interview with him a few years ago, and he said they really beat the crap out of each other at the end of that movie. They're like, they said, do you really want to make this look good on film? And and, and Patrick Swayze is like, I will do whatever it takes. Like he was totally committed to his roles. And so he and that guy really pounded each other. And afterwards they were like brothers, they said, because they, you know, they caught it all on camera and really were punching each other and stuff. In a, weird, in a weird segue, that Apollo movie that came out with Michael B. Jordan, he really got knocked out in one of the scenes. Like, oh. like where like they're like, you know, faking the punch. Like he faked it so good that he connected at the same time the guy threw it and like it wasn't like a fake body drop he literally got knocked out and got up and did the scene again wow I've seen it a couple of times it was like so some of these actors take some of these fighting movies actually you know relatively seriously i mean i know they can the angles and stuff like that i mean you know i but jackie still, chan's serious isn't he isn't he like a like a do my own stunts type of guy or was he Oh yeah, for the majority of his career, yeah, he yeah. was he was amazing. Uh, nobody else like him, definitely. I I actually my my wife and I met him in uh, when 
when he did his book tour for his first autobiography, which is up here behind me as well, um, he, he went to a Target in near Dallas, Texas in 1998. And uh, my wife and I drove up, drove up there from San Antonio and stood in line and uh, got the book. And no one, everyone who was walking up to him didn't say anything. They were just giving him this book and he would sign it and they would just walk off. So when we got up there, I said, hey, Jackie, um, you know, my wife or my fiance and I, we're getting married uh, next year. Would you sing at our wedding? Because, you know, he's a famous singer in, in Hong Kong. And so he said, oh, tell me you know, what, what day is it? And so his assistant took down the dates and the times and all that kind of stuff. It was just a joke. We were saying it, but, you know, whatever. So later on, we got a letter from his office saying, thank you for asking Mr. Chan to sing at your wedding. Unfortunately, he'll be filming a new movie. Here's some swag, whatever. If you're ever in Hong Kong, please visit. So later on for our honeymoon, we went to China. We went all over China. So all those people who think I'm a China hater, my wife and I like bonded over China because she was an Asian studies major. Um, we went to China and the last part of our trip after the three weeks we were there was to go to Hong Kong. I went to Jackie Chan's office. He wasn't there, but his, his um, staff was super nice. They gave us again, swag and took photos and all that. So that's yeah. awesome. Did you show them the letter? Like, did you bring the letter with you to kind of prove that you weren't like a creeper that just kind of. No, I didn't bring the, the letter. They were just, they were just cool. Like I just showed up. I'm like, this is Jackie Chan's office, right? Remember this is 1999. Yeah. So he wasn't, he had done rumble in the Bronx, which was kind of like the breakthrough movie for him in the United States. And then like a couple others, it was before rush hour. So he wasn't still that known. So he had been trying to break into the United States in a big way for years. And so they were thrilled that an American would come all the way to visit Jackie Chan. That's cool. That's I love wild. that. His second autobiography is pretty good too. He basically lays out all the dirt about he like his first autobiography didn't cover any of the dirt. The second one, he's like, look, this is why I'm not a very good person. And here's why well, so, he called himself a bad person. Oh yeah. Yeah. He spent tons of money on like prostitutes and he, he was like really bad to his wife and he didn't want to have anything to do with his kid. And so his, his second autobiography was like coming clean, like trying to be healthy about all that. That's wild. Yeah, good for him. I like how you go up and like, can you sing at our wedding? And he's like, potentially. Yeah. I mean, what a great guy. I mean, just, yeah. Why not? Why not ask? (laughs) Worst case, it's no, right? I mean, like. And I got a signed book and a good story from it. Well, Richard, I don't want to keep you. I mean, we've been here for almost a couple hours now and minus my crappy internet problems for some reason today (laughs) on on a great podcast. Uh, I don't want to keep keep going longer. It could keep going. Yeah, we, I want I mean, to talk I, more about ABT one, but maybe that's another day. I guess. Yeah, I mean, I I, I tell everybody like you know we'd like to if once you know Hacker Summer Camp happens again, we'll have a, a whole Moscow Mules and Nop Slides guest party and have everybody out and sit that down and maybe do mini podcasts. I don't know. It, it, great to have you on again in the future for sure. But I appreciate your time and stuff like that. And I, I know you've been off. You said you've been off Twitter for a little bit, but if people want to reach out, what's the best way they can get a hold of you? <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> if you reach out to me on Twitter, you will probably not reach me. Uh, I may never return to Twitter. It's, the more people I've told about this, the more people have said, I have either thought about it or I'm actually doing that now. I have also left Twitter. Uh, yeah. My wife. Say- my yeah. wife is not on there much anymore. And like, I just go on there for news, you know? Yeah. yeah. If you want to talk to me about cybersecurity, it's probably not a good idea. Uh, if you want to talk to me about any of my martial arts projects, I'd be happy to talk about those. <laughs> I, I think you should, uh, if you're going to reach out to Richard, make sure you pro- reply directly to the tweet that, that we're talking about. You'll probably be able to find it uh, based on the, the ratio of <laughs> likes to replies. <laughs> I, I don't think it's looking, about, it's looking very good. <laughs> 
yeah. you'll know it's, which one when you see it. Yeah, it's. It will not be long before I am out of the security world. I, I don't know exactly when that'll be. I do have plans to work on my PhD in history. And I tried doing a PhD once before while having a full-time job and it just didn't work. So I, I'm not saying like this year I'm out, but it won't be that much longer, I think, because, um, you know, things are going well at work and I enjoy, I enjoy working at Corelight very much. Great company, great culture, product actually works. Um, you know, we're helping people find bad guys, but, uh, I've been in the world now for coming up on 24 years, I think. So, uh, maybe next year we'll be 25. That'll be a good career and I'll be ready to work on something else. So right. my space is what you're saying. <laughs> well, I mean, I know I appreciate all you've done. And like I said, I used your book in grad school and I think still did up until my wife who came eight years after I did in grad school to the same program. So, it's uh, impacted my career and many people since then. And I, I look forward to that. I'm going to pull up some of your old, you know, I'm going to get that blog post series because I'd like to think I'd like to dig into stuff and make students read back about how things were actually done back in the day with, you know, using paper and pen. Yeah. Well, what's going on, right? About, I don't know, maybe 20% of the content of each one of those volumes, not, not even the fourth one. The fourth one will be stuff you've never seen before. But the first, th first three, that's all new stuff because I wrote commentaries and everything. I didn't just publish. I was like, this is what I was thinking. This is what this means. This is why I was wrong. Look what I used to think back then. Oh, my God. And I, you know, I would say, this is what I think now. So that's why a lot of it, you know, that, that's why it took me a year and a half to publish all that stuff. And so I hope you do find it useful. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm going yeah. to pick up tonight and I'm very serious about that. And like, yeah, I appreciate the insight you got. And I, I learned like I, every time we have a podcast, I, I pick something out from everybody, but like, this has been a great one, you know, personal tips to myself and how to look at things and especially the writing aspect of it. Not like, you know, when you're, you know, also when you're doing interviews and stuff like that, some of that stuff is very useful to me. And I get well, apologize for the shit internet. No, that's no problem. Like, if you want to talk about like, if you're still interested in publishing and you want just like my experience, like anything from just general concepts down to this is the size of the paper that I recommend you use in Google Docs when you're, if you want to print with Amazon, I'm happy to share that because it's not, I mean, I figured it out. I'm not the smartest guy in the world. So it, it can be done and it can come out looking like a professional product if you're willing to put in the work. I appreciate that. Yeah, I definitely, you know, you will see, I, I felt like I, burnt a lot of my soul trying to start doing that book and writing a few chapters. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. If you've got a few chapters, I mean, when you self publish, you could say, this is a preview or this is a booklet or this is whatever, and just get it out there. And, and even if you just do it to get familiar with the process, this process just scales once, you know, three chapters today, 10 chapters tomorrow. Um, that's, that's what's so great. You, you don't waste any money by, hiring a publisher, hiring an agent, all that kind of stuff you used to have to do. Yeah. I might, yeah I'll, I'll ping you again because that's, and, and we do have four chapters written. So like, yeah. it's like, it's, it's a, it was a, it's like actually a half a book, man. It's more than, ha it's close to a half a book done. It just didn't work out because it wasn't, it was it, poor guidance as I like to say, and, and, and lack of experience on our end as well. So. Sounds like you need a mentor. I'm happy but, uh, to help with writing stuff. There you go. Yeah. Just don't exactly. ask me tech. Don't ask me what Chinese TTPs are in use right now. Cause I will, I will not be able to answer. <laughs> What's ugly gorilla up to nowadays. <laughs> He's probably got some tech consultancy. I mean, all those guys are all, they're on the lamb. 
Well, <laughs> no, they're probably national heroes. Well, they're not even national heroes. They're probably, they probably have their own companies and working and they're taken yeah. care of. They're, they're under a PLA branch somewhere and just, <laughs> no, they have, they're, they're a new APT group for sure. They're probably under like some other, uh, yeah. They're just living there. That's Constant. cool. Yeah. Richard, thank you again for coming on. Really appreciate it. Uh, I had a great time. Yeah. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, David. It was no, nice Thank you. To you. Appreciate you uh, and your time and your insights. And, uh, you know, let's do this again in person, at least somewhere. One day. Someday. Hopefully. And as like, we like to end all the one, uh, everybody stay thirsty. <laughs> all the ones. Stay thirsty. Cheers, everybody. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs>